0: Please pray with me again. Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, glorify yourself in our hearts. Make us to worship and adore you as only you deserve, for only you are worthy. Use the power of your word to cause us to see you for who you are, that we will fear you, God, that we will trust you and love you and long to obey you. Change us by it for your own glory, through your grace, given through Jesus Christ. And Lord, cause us to follow him faithfully, not in our own strength, but in his, and for his glory. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 17. That's where we are in our sequential exposition of the second book in a series by, we believe to be. The Physician Luke. So we did all of Acts over a, approximately a three-year period. <laughs> I think we may be a year and a half into Acts now, and we're in Acts chapter 17. Read with me Acts 17, beginning in verse 1. We're going to cover verses 1 through 15 this morning. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where a synagogue, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. Jesus, and now verse eight. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Remember the irony? They were accusing the believers of doing this, but really that's what they're doing. Verse 14, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they too departed. As we continue to follow the missionary work of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the author reveals repeating patterns. With his closeness to and respect for the Apostle Paul, Luke was traveling with them very recently, we shouldn't doubt that this historical theology is also setting forth a model for us to follow, to maintain the same focus, to keep following in their footsteps. Why do we sometimes fall into the foolish thinking that a new way of doing something must be better? In the case of following the model of the apostles, as they show us how to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, we do well to follow our own corny proverb, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We need to maintain the same focus by following the pattern of the apostles and their earliest disciples. So today I want to underscore four clear patterns from their missionary ministry in Thessalonica and Berea, and it connects to before and beyond, and how we must walk according to these patterns. So the first repeated pattern that we must not overlook is that the gospel doesn't change. Jesus is the Christ. The gospel doesn't change. For two millennia, the gospel doesn't change. Because God proved that Jesus is Lord through his sinless life and his miraculous power while he was in public ministry, and then climactically through his sacrificial death and his vindicating resurrection and his heavenly ascension, it shouldn't surprise us that such is the same gospel that Peter preached and Stephen preached and Philip and and Paul and every other Christ follower who faithfully proclaims the only means to be right with God and receive eternal life. Jesus is the Christ. Paul preached the same gospel. Now, I have this map for you that's the map that we've used several times of the second missionary journey, but for right now, you're just looking at it to, to have an overall view of this part of the world. So if you look over on the right, you'll see where I'm beginning. I'm beginning at Damascus. Remember Paul's, Saul's conversion? Paul preached the same gospel in Damascus and in Jerusalem and in Cilicia and Syria, near where he's from, in Tarsus, in that intervening period of 12 to 14 years and then with Barnabas he preached the same gospel when he was sent out from Antioch and he preached the same gospel in Cyprus and again in Pisidia and the same gospel in Iconium and Lystra and Derbe now he's in missionary service with Silas and they are preaching the same gospel that Jesus is the Christ in Philippi and Thessalonica, and Berea, and the same gospel will go forth to Athens, and Corinth, and Ephesus, and on and on. Through hardship and trial, whether well-received or persecuted, the same gospel. The locations and the audiences would change, but the gospel would not. Paul would one day preach this same gospel in Rome before the highest human authorities. This gospel declares that we stand under God's authority. He has proven that Jesus is Lord. This gospel declares that we must submit to God's rule and repent from sin and turn to Jesus for salvation. If the gospel doesn't change, then the required response doesn't change either. And so we find this same gospel and this same expectation and Acts chapter 17. Look back in your Bible at verse 1. The missionaries now leave Philippi, and they travel through Amphipolis and Apollonia to reach Thessalonica. Following along this Macedonian segment of the Ignatian Way, which was an important east-west Roman road, each of these cities would have been a a very full one-day journey on foot from one to the next, and so they'll continue one to the next and make their stop to preach in Thessalonica. Now, this city was the capital for the Roman government in Macedonia, and it was under Roman authority, of course. And it was an important Roman port city along the Via Ignatia. Now, when when Paul and Silas are, and Timothy are chased out of Thessalonica in verse ten. They go down to Berea, and there begin again with a similar pattern, proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. We are proclaimers of the same message. Jesus is the Christ. We are witnesses to the same gospel as the Apostle Paul. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Maintaining the same gospel is of critical importance because we cannot alter the gospel without losing it entirely. We cannot alter the gospel without losing it entirely. As one author writes, if Jesus is not proclaimed as Israel's Messiah and and the Savior of humankind, who died instead of and for the benefit of sinners making forgiveness of sins and eternal life possible for sinners who come to faith in Jesus, then such news will always be a different gospel than the one that Paul and the other apostles were proclaiming. And as Paul himself insists, a different gospel is no gospel at all. Galatians 1, 6 and 7. And so we must proclaim as Paul does, and and explain and prove and defend that God's good news for us is Jesus. And this good news exposes the bad news. It was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, unless he accomplishes for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We'll come back to those themes, but for here, for this part, We are proclaimers of the same message, Jesus is the Christ. There is no other. The second pattern, which is especially clear in the ministry to Thessalonica and Berea, is that the scriptures are trustworthy, authoritative, and effective. The holy scriptures can be trusted. What things do you trust do you rely on? Do you know that are always right and always secure, always worthy of your highest admiration and complete trust? The word of God can be trusted. God's Bible is also the authority on knowing God. It's the authority on knowing what God expects from us. And God's own word will be the instrument most effective in communicating the message of Christ and allowing the gospel to have its impact. When Paul entered Thessalonica, we hear that for three consecutive Sabbaths, he's in the synagogue, as was his custom. Remember that in Acts, we're told that even though Paul has become the missionary who knows that God has sent him in particular to the Gentiles, they still make this practice of going to the Jews first. Those who submit to the authority of God's word already. He goes into the synagogue, and for three consecutive Sabbaths, he's proclaiming Christ from the Scriptures, and he's reasoning from the Scriptures. He's explaining, and he's proving. First of all, we should understand these these other things, reasoning, explaining, and proving, to take place in the context of proclaiming Christ. This is monological. There's a part of gospel proclamation that is quite literally declaring because in our own hearts, in our own posture, in our own minds, we're not starting in the right place. So we don't actually begin with simple dialogue, although you listen well to understand where people are, but you must remember that that the gospel is proclamation. In fact, I'm reminded that we often talk about our witness as sort of sharing with people. I want just to, to remind you of something that I discovered in my study of Acts that that the, the terminology described of believers de, uh, talking to other people about Christ is called proclamation or preaching. That's what we do; we proclaim Christ. So, in the context though of proclaiming Christ, because the Apostle Paul would have in this what was their custom in the in the synagogue? They would have read Scripture. He would have then explained that scripture and expounded on that scripture, and so he's uh, proclaiming Christ. He's making an announcement. It's a declaration of the gospel. And then as part of his proclamation, though, Paul is willing to dialogue or reason with them. He's willing to converse and discuss, to listen well, to get feedback and to answer the questions. But he isn't using his own ingenuity. He isn't trusting his own pathos or his own passion He's not even trusting in his own skill as a debater. Paul is trusting in the truth of the scriptures to make his point. And it needs to be said, he can do this straightforwardly in the synagogue context, as I told you, because they already believe the scriptures to be the authoritative word of God. And Paul is explaining, the text says, he's he's opening, he's interpreting clearly the contents of scripture and thereby he's also proving, he's showing forth, demonstrating, providing evidence from the scriptures. What is he doing with all of these things? It says he's showing from the scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. According to God's word, it was necessary. It was necessary. Jews resisted the notion of a suffering Messiah, even though There is prophetic testimony of it in the Old Testament scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, in places like Psalm 22 in Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12 and 13. But these listeners needed to know it was necessary. They needed to know that they could not be saved by the law because they did not nor could not perfectly keep the law. Listen to this. To keep the law, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself at all times and in all ways. You've done that, right? No, we have not. They had not. To stumble at any point in keeping the law, James tells us, is to be guilty of breaking all of it. And in that context of James 2.10, James says in verse 9, even showing favoritism, partiality, that would be breaking God's law. Jesus Christ, however, kept God's law perfectly. In Adam, we sin. In Christ, we can be made righteous because of his righteousness. What Adam didn't do, what you can't do, what Israel wouldn't, couldn't do, even with the law, Christ has done for us. So that he could become the spotless lamb, a perfect sacrifice, unblemished by sin. His perfect life and his atoning death on a cross was. Necessary. And it was necessary that he come back from the dead to be victorious over sin and to be victorious over death. It was necessary. By doing so, God vindicates his plan. By raising Jesus from the dead, he vindicates that Jesus is Lord. And by raising Jesus from the dead, he vindicates that by faith in him, we can truly be forgiven of sin and granted right standing with God based on his righteousness for us. It is the scriptures that declare Jesus as God's only means of salvation. This word, this Bible, is God's revelation of himself, his plan, his gospel. It is authoritative. It is trustworthy. And it is effective. Some Jews, the text tells us, were persuaded They were convinced to trust and obey, and and they joined with Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks, God-fearers, and not a few of the leading women. In the Greco-Roman world, it had already become not uncommon for some women to hold influential or prominent positions, and such was particularly true in Macedonia. Macedonia. Now the pattern and value of the authority of the scriptures is reinforced in a unique way in Berea. Look again at verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word of God with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Luke calls these hearers in Berea more noble because they listened well. They received the teaching eagerly. This was considered a noble trait even amongst the Greeks to to hear high philosophical things and to listen to them well and to consider them. But Luke here says they are noble because they listen well and they receive it eagerly. And then another important aspect of their being noble in, in an internal sense is that they examined the scriptures daily. They analyzed in careful detail. They studied with rigor to see if what Paul said was truly consistent with the authoritative word of God. And if Paul is doing his job, actually declaring the truth of the gospel to them from the scriptures, what will they find when they examine the scriptures? Wow. Would you look at that? So too in Berea, the scriptures are effective. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. I think there should be no question that Luke sets this example from the Bereans as a pattern for us to follow, carrying on into today with all forms of things that we might be taught. And we have even greater access to this same resource. You have excellent translations of the Bible in the English language. The Word of God. One author makes the application of the principle plain for us. As the Jews of Berea examined Paul's teaching, testing its authenticity and relevance on the basis of its agreement with Scripture so Christians examine the preaching and teaching of pastors and evangelists on the same basis with Scripture, now including the words of Jesus and the apostles, the New Testament. But without such examination, if we don't examine what we hear according to the Scriptures, if we do not test it according to the Scriptures, then the loudest preacher or the preacher who works with the lowest common denominator, who is most exciting, who has the greatest following, with no guarantees that what he preaches as gospel is indeed the word of God. That's whom we're inclined to follow. Therefore, we don't simply profess the authority of Scripture. It's not just something we talk about. Like, this is an important doctrine. It is. but we study it to know and obey its content. We believe what God says, and what God says is what is best. You can't even trust your own feelings. You know that, right? You know, when I'm struggling with a heart issue, I know that I must recognize that my feelings, because of a sinful nature that is still within me, my feelings will lie. And so I must find from God's word what truth needs to reshape my feelings. In fact, I must begin to obey before I even feel like it. And then I trust the spirit of God to help me conform rightly and to have Renew a right spirit within me. God, help me to love what you love. But I will lie to myself. I really can't be trusted, but God's word can. God's word is trustworthy. God's word is authoritative. God's word is effective. And we have access to the same resource used by Christ himself and the apostles. In fact, we have the completed canon concerning Christ and his apostles. How blessed you are. We should therefore make use of this same resource in our evangelism and in our teaching, and in our examination of what we are being told by others. And now here's a third pattern that is very clear in Thessalonica and Berea. The gospel continuously generates aggressive opposition. In Thessalonica, the Jews are jealous. This is at least the third mention of such a reaction from the Jews in in different places in Acts. They are jealous for their way their version of what God has said, and their religious power and influence. And so they incite the evil men who loiter in the market, the do-nothings who are easy to stir up into mob violence. And they cause a riot or a disorderly disturbance in the city. And the mob positions itself at Jason's house, evidently where they expect to find the missionaries, wanting to bring them out. Jason was probably a Hellenistic Jew, who is hospitably hosting them in his home. He didn't know what he was in for. (laughs) When they can't find Paul and Silas there at Jason's home, they take Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials. Well, let's drag somebody else. There would have been five or six of these polytarchs, the, the designation for these authorities, a term used only here in Macedonia, These officials had full governing authority over the city and and answered only to Rome, and they were given free reign unless they, they did something really foolish, then they could get themselves in trouble. But the jealous Jews with their mob accuse quote, these men, referring to the missionaries, they accuse them of disrupting, upsetting the whole inhabited world with their teaching. They speak a whole lot better than they know. Your ESV translation or whatever other translation you have uses some version of this phrase to say they've turned the world upside down with their teaching. Let me ask you something 2,000 years later. Has not the gospel of Jesus Christ turned this world upside down or right side up? But that's not their intent. (laughs) Here in, in this city, they accuse them of acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is there is because they're talking about another king, Jesus, which is true. This is a particularly nefarious approach, though, from the Jews against some of their own, other Jews, knowing that such would be just the right tact to get them in the most trouble with Roman authorities. It's pretty insidious. Successful trick. Luke often notes the way that the gospel's detractors will twist the truth to make trouble for evangelists. And this approach hits its mark and the authorities are concerned. It sounds like they they likely exact a security payment from Jason, most likely as a guarantee that the missionaries will leave their community. But getting them out of Thessalonica isn't enough for the aggressive persecutors. Remember, they followed them to Berea. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, verse 13, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. We view this and start thinking to ourselves, good grief, these guys are serious about this. But really, we should expect and we should anticipate similar persecution. Doesn't the New Testament tell us that we should expect it? Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I use the word anticipate in the sense of preparing ourselves for it. Here's why. The unique transformational power of God's gospel generates aggressive opposition. It's exclusive It's authoritative. It stands over you in a way that says you must come to God on his terms. You can't weasel out from under this. You can't have it your way and God's way at the same time. It demands a response. And although some are granted by God to hear with open hearts, resulting in their conversion like those in Thessalonica and Berea who are persuaded to join with Paul and Silas. Others will hard-heartedly and stubbornly, like like stiff-necked, they will refuse to submit to the gospel. They will reject the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news of God's revelation in and through Jesus. And why do they do that? Because in our sin, we rage against God's authority and his expectation of us we rage against the guilt of our sin and the specific attention concerning its consequences. Doesn't that just make you miserable? Unless you have your heart changed so that you see your sin for what it is and the grace of God through Jesus Christ. The gospel offends because of what it demands. The gospel offends because of what it demands. It demands that we accept God's authority. It demands that we accept God's means of making things right. Only Jesus atoning death on a cross. And it demands that we accept our sin, our depravity, and our inability, and its consequence, just judgment. It demands that we turn in merciful pleading to Jesus to forgive us and to make us right with God. What a miserable wretch that I am before you, a holy God. Save me. And this resistance comes from the religious and the non-religious alike, as the Bible tells us, a stumbling block to Jews and, and nonsense to Greeks. To the worldly religious, and I'm calling it worldly religion, because if it isn't specifically what God says, then it's worldly. To the worldly religious, even the way the Jews have have gone in this context, it offends them because they can never be good enough. It offends their sense of rightness, and God is declaring that as insufficient. To the worldly wise, it offends their self-trust and their self-love, that their worldview is based on falsehood. So it is right for us to realize that a gospel proclamation that is never offensive is perhaps never authentic. Let me quote this from Eckhart Schnabel again. A gospel proclamation that is never offensive is perhaps never authentic. Yes, with prayer and submission, you can take the sharp edges off of your own demeanor, whether whether that be wrong motivations or attitudes, whether that be a lack of clarity and preparation, you can take those sharp edges off. In the spirit, you can better bear out the fruit of the spirit. You can do that better. But you can't take the sharp edges off the gospel because gospel proclamation is the razor-sharp razor spear that God uses to pierce through our sin-loving, hardened hide of self-sufficiency right to the heart of who we are before God. If you don't already have it memorized, I encourage you to memorize this text and to meditate on it. Hebrews four, twelve and 13. For the word of God is living and active. The word of God... Is sharper than any two edged sword. The word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. The word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And verse 13. And memorize this one too. And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What does that second verse mean? The just judge sees all. You can't wiggle out from under God's authority and justice. God is good and loving and merciful and gracious, but God is holy and pure and just and his wrath is kindled against our sin. He is God, and we cannot nor would not want him to be any other. He alone is God. So see how this has been building. The gospel message is unchanging, it is trust, The trustworthy and authoritative scriptures are effective for proclaiming that gospel. And those who resist the word of God, penetrating them like a surgeon's blade, are doing so at their own eternal peril. Jesus wants to heal you. Jesus wants to free you. Jesus wants to forgive you. He wants to make you clean so that you can stand in God's presence. Will you kneel to him today? But as has always been and always will be, that Jesus is the narrow gate leading to the narrow way. The path of destruction is wide and many are taking it. The demand of the gospel that Jesus is the only way and that he is the ultimate authority to whom we must kneel will always be met with some aggressive opposition. Therefore, Christ's church abides in him and his people stick together to serve him in the midst of harsh resistance. That's the final emphasis for us to see this morning in this passage from Acts 17 in Thessalonica and Berea. Very briefly, be reminded that Christians care for one another because of our commitment to Christ. We are linked arm in arm. We are literally members one of another. We have each other's backs. We fight for each other's growth and for one another's perseverance. We love one another. We warn one another about the deceitfulness of sin. We spur one another on toward love and good deeds. In Thessalonica, these Jews who are persuaded, they join with them. They cast their lot in with them, associating their lives with whatever becomes of this community in Christ. As did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. What an eclectic blend the church is made up of. We always joke around that we hang out with fellow Christians and these are people we probably would hang out with in no other context. What an eclectic blend God brings together. But we are one in Christ. Joining together with Paul and Silas for these believers proves to be of no small consequence. Jason, in particular, takes a lot of heat for playing host to the missionaries, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and some of the other brothers with him. They have indeed bound their lives together with God's people, persecution and all. The believers there, most of them new followers of Christ, act swiftly and courageously to send Paul and Silas away at night to Berea. They're cooperating, helping. Then again from Berea, the, the Christians pr- protect Paul, possibly having received some hint of the mob's intent against him. He's the primary one at risk as the vocal leader, so they send him off toward the sea. Here's this smaller map again. Since Silas and Timothy remained behind in Berea, it doesn't take long, long for Paul to feel the lack of, of these men, his teammates in ministry. And so they send for them to reunite with him in Athens. We must have the same care for one another. It will always be the case that when we are pressed by outside forces, our minor differences will fade away and we will stand together. We come from different backgrounds, we come from different experiences. We are multicolored, multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multilingual body of Christ. In conclusion, be reminded that we have everything we need, and the pattern has been set for us. So whether we are considering our focus for ministry as a local church, or whether we're teaching those who are hopefully to be sent out from us, what we are to prioritize. We do well to emphasize these four things again and again. The gospel doesn't change. Jesus is the Christ. There is no other way. The scriptures are trustworthy, authoritative, and effective. We love them, and we lean on them, and we learn from them, and we live them. knowing that the gospel continuously generates aggressive opposition, and so we anticipate it and we prepare ourselves for it. And, and that is one of the reasons Christ gave us a community so Christians care for one another because of our commitment and love for Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as the praise team returns. Heavenly Father, we thank you For the conviction from your word. Father God, you know that I thank you for letting me be a part of a church that believes that what we should do with your word is let you speak. We pray that you will continue to use us this way. Help us to, to teach others the same. Father, thank you for so many faithful believers in churches who are, in fact, doing this same thing. And God, we pray for the conviction of those who, who, who maybe are true believers, but they aren't following this, this uh, pattern We pray for your conviction in their lives so that they will follow these patterns. And Lord, we pray especially for those who call themselves the the church but are not. We pray by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word that you will break down the falseness of those religious institutions and that you will build up your faithful church. Thank you for the privilege of belonging to you and being used by you. We love you because you loved us first. Amen. A good reminder that song is that Jesus wins. We know the end. We know who emerges triumphant. If you are in Christ, you have already been swept up Into the current of what God will accomplish. And you get to be a part of that. And so it's comforting. Yes, it's encouraging. And it's also humbling. And it reminds us of who we are and what we're supposed to be about. So let's close with that focus in mind as we go out to be God's people. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you, but we also confess that there are so many things in our lives that allow us to be distracted, and we struggle so much with our our nature, our sin nature that wants things to be about us and to make ourselves comfortable, and we are just pulled so many different ways. Sometimes we're tempted to follow the foolish ways of the world. God, help us to use your word by the power of your spirit. Help us to maintain the same focus as our Lord Jesus Christ, who came in obedience to your will, and he stayed focused for our good and your glory. Help us to walk in his steps and follow the example of your apostles. Give us strength and courage and humility to follow you in this battle that rages for the souls of men. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.